Hello and welcome to the Oddcast, Ireland's musical theatre podcast. My name is Keen O'Dowd and you are listening to the show that brings you the latest news and opinion on all things musical theatre, not just on Broadway and the West End, but right here at home on the Irish musical theatre circuit. On today's show, we are bringing you part one of a two-part special feature as we delve into the statistics of the past 10 years of the Association of Irish Musical Society's awards and adjudication scheme to reveal what shows, parts, and indeed societies tend to receive nominations and awards. But before all that, let me introduce you to my co-hosts, the incandescent Daniel Ryan and Adam Trundle. Nice, nice. Now, that was a very positive. That was, that made me feel good. I'll take your word for it, I don't know what it means. (laughs) You're like a light bulb in my eyes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, a light bulb in the eyes doesn't actually sound that nice. Now you say it like that. <laughs> yeah, like a light bulb, like during an interrogation. Yeah. Like, yeah. like that kind of light bulb. <laughs> my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> well, have we have we all enjoyed Hamilton oh, on Disney like, Plus? Like you wouldn't which believe. Which has just launched. <laughs> I I watched it. Um, for the first, I haven't listened to it in ages, so I watched it with the whole family. Kind of mm. had to, ref, you know, restrain myself from singing along with every single word. I think we we made a pact that and Peggy would be the only two words we would sing along. <laughs> um, yeah. And then about fifteen minutes later, I realized that there was going to be a a live watch party with like the cast and crew of Hamilton. So I ended up watching it again at that point. So that was seven p.m. New York time, which I think was midnight for us. Yeah. So so that was a lot of fun. Uh, so I didn't manage to get the whole way through. I decided to go to bed at, at the intermission, um, <laughs> which is a bit sad. <laughs> but, <laughs> what what happens to him? <laughs> yeah, it's like, and everyone lived happily ever after. Uh, yeah. A bit like, have you seen the memes about Into the Woods, where it's like everyone gets their happy ending just before the end of yeah, yeah, Act yeah. 1. And it's like, and you know, if you go home then... It's a bit like Phoebe in, in Friends when they, <laughs> they turned off, <laughs> what is it, Old Yeller or something on. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Completely. Well, but the, it, well, the joke's on you because actually this version of Hamilton's like Bandersnatch. So it different, <laughs> it's different every time. So oh, wow. Like, yeah. Every time you watch it, something new happens. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like Spelling Bee. They get the audience on stage, the improv. Yeah. Damn. They just see, <laughs> see what happens to him. Does he become president? Does he get killed in a duel? Who knows? Can you find some random in the audience who can rap that fast? We'll never know. It is a really brilliant production, though, I have to say. Like, I mean, the recording that's done, I think it's over three nights, is it? In yes. the Richard Rogers Theatre yep. in, in Broadway. Um, but back in 2016... So you have the original cast. Yeah. And I, I did see actually that the uh, Jonathan Groff obviously was uh, the original Broadway King George. Yeah. But wasn't in the cast by 2016. He he had left that point. Right. So the person who was playing the king kind of stepped aside, we'll say, <laughs> in order to make room for oh, really? Jonathan Groff. So really? I, I wonder how willing... Uh, that was oh. for them to step aside. <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a bit harsh, isn't ouch. it? I mean, I can understand why they want, and they've they've done this previously for recorded yeah. versions of shows. I think it was the same with Shrek. I think Brian Darcy James was out of the cast by the stage that they did the recording of it for film. But he parachuted uh, back in. But he, they parachuted him. Back I mean, in. Uh, speaking of Brian Darcy James, I wonder is he annoyed that he didn't stick around a little bit longer mm. in Hamilton and uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and get himself on the OBC recording yeah. rather than Groff? But Absolutely. Again, again, I, you know, I wonder 
was it really his choice to leave or when when they found out Jonathan Groff was available was was he well aside? I mean obviously Brian Darcy James is fucking brilliant he is perf- like performer it, but it is hard to imagine anybody other than Jonathan Groff doing that part the intensity that he has as George the <laughs> third is insane I, I was going to ask did anyone else find it really distracting that he spits an awful lot the yeah. amount of spit the amount of spit and he's like like he's putting a lot of effort into it and he, mm. he's not in a huge amount of it like he really just turned about yeah. three times throughout the whole thing yeah pretty yeah. much three times but he's <laughs> like I, I was just really taken aback with it because it goes in like a close-up and yeah. you can see that he is really working it like i was like wow okay. he is he's just brilliant and he is amazing at that but just like the in comparison to like davy diggs playing thomas jefferson who is all about movement and all about physical comedy everything about george the third is so contained for yeah. the most part yeah like yeah. you see him walking on and there's not a lit and a bit of movement except for the face yeah it's all the face and it's it's sort of like one of those master classes in kind of getting the most out of the comedy of a part just with facial expressions nothing else because the fact that he's not moving makes you concentrate completely on every little minute de- detail of what he's doing absolutely yeah um, but it's so intense like you look at him he do- he's like he doesn't blink for an entire scene <laughs> it's yeah. mental but the whole show is like intense i mean i was worried like having actually seen this one on the west end um you know watching the video of it then i was yeah. i was like concerned that that the intensity on stage wouldn't translate but it did mm, it really yeah, did yeah. it's like it's it, yeah, kind of holding on to your seat particularly the act one closer non-stop yeah it's it's crazy when it's there's a really, six it's a really different songs being reprised at once mm. <laughs> yeah no it's a really it's a in, it's not just like a recording of a show it's actually it is more than that it is really really good mm. you really can get into it like you're almost in the theater yeah but i think the director of the like the film version of it was the director of the, the musical itself right i think he double jobbed or at least was involved so you know that they extracted you know. a bit more value out of that yeah it's it is kind of funny because obviously like there's this whole debate going on at the moment about the extent to which these recordings are able to replace live theater while everything is on hiatus due to lockdown and while they are brilliant they don't obviously compare to physically being in the theater yeah. and watching Hamilton. Like, there's there's sort of a question in my mind as to whether these types of recordings over, like, the medium of TV are better than doing an actual film adaptation. Yeah. You know, like, like if we're going to provide the experience of Hamilton on screen, or or any musical, for that matter... Are you better doing it or taking the time to do it as a kind of, you know, real film adaptation and giving it the works rather than presenting it in the format that it has been presented? Because you think of some of the really, really good ones over the years, like obviously West Side Story, multiple Academy Award winning, I think. The Music Man was nominated for Best Picture. The Sound of Music won Best Picture at the Oscars. My Fair Lady. My Fair Lady, I think, won Best Picture. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and even some of the later ones like Cabaret were obviously very well received. So it, the question is, like, whether, I mean, do you prefer watching a film adaptation or do you prefer to see, if you're sitting down at home, sitting in front of the TV, do you prefer to watch just a recording of the videoing of the theatre production? Um, 
I think I'd go with a film adaptation yeah. over that because like Hamilton's amazing and that's a, easily because like over during lockdown there's been several of these kind of you yeah, know yeah. live broadcasts of stage productions and you're just you're essentially watching it unfold on stage and like Hamilton's definitely the best one I've seen by far but even with that I was still like oh, imagine being there imagine being in yeah. that audience like you know if you're kind of like this is how good it is sitting at home on the couch imagine what it would be like in the mm. actual room so I think yeah personally I that's all that's going through my head when I watch just, <laughs> just watching something on stage where people are yeah. in an audience I'm like like it's the same as watching a concert like like a, a, like be it like Glastonbury or anything like that or mm. like a, an actual concert somebody has at Wembley or whatever you're like yeah this is great but imagine being in the crowd like you know it's kind of a bit yeah. of that whereas at least like you know the film version it's kind of like like a level playing field. It's intended yeah. for the person sitting at home on their couch. Like, you know, whereas it's, it's kind of, you know, you feel like, oh, the person in the room it's got a better... It's an experience not the, tinged yeah. with regret. Exactly. Yeah. The, per- <laughs> the person in the room got a better go of it than I did. I, I know, didn't get yeah. to yeah. be there. You know, yeah. that kind of way. That, but, that'd be me. Yeah. yeah. I think it depends on the show. I think some stories, mm. like the way they've decided to tell Hamilton in particular, is it's very like, it's like deconstructed version of a musical. They're not literally taking you through scene by scene it's it's much more they're narrating what happened to you and and like the set is pretty much the same throughout you have to just use your imagination and like the costuming and choreography you know and and like it's the words are first and foremost Mm. so i think if you try to take hamilton and and make it more straightforward in terms of a film where you actually have them in the white house or in you know the congress building and stuff i think it, it would detract something from it but obviously if you did a filmed version of west side story i don't think it would compare to the film west side story it you know yeah i mean like and i I agree with you dan i think neither compare with being in the audience of a Mm. real i mean there were two kind of overarching thoughts while watching hamilton for me was one you know god i wish i could have been in that room yeah but the other thing was god i want to be on stage again I was watching, yeah. like, you see how much the company get to do, uh, and I see Dan is dying to say the rumor happened. I was just like, you want to be in the room where it happened. <laughs> I can't believe I didn't finish that talk yeah, exactly. while I was saying it. <laughs> that was an open goal. Like, I have blazed it wide. Like. <laughs> you can just tell I have the worst poker face. Yeah. Yeah. Dan has two kings. He's like, ah. Ah. Room where it happened. <laughs> room where it happened. <laughs> so yeah, I wouldn't be in the room where it happened, but I wanted to be on stage. Like, yeah. I mean, I don't think I'd be worthy to be on stage with that particular company, but I wanted to be on a stage because it just, you know, yeah. it made me miss it so much. Yeah, I, here, here. you're dead, dead right because it was exactly the same thought for me. I was just looking at them, and it, and it is a really involved um, show for the ensemble to be yeah. in you if you are in the ensemble in Hamilton you you just get to be part of these spectacular set pieces and these spectacular pieces of choreography but honestly I would happily be holding an umbrella at the back of the Ascot races <laughs> in my fair lady right now I would I would take that but it is Adam something that we probably are not going to have an opportunity to do for a while because we are now looking at a position where a lot of societies that are due to be, or would have been due due to produce their shows in the latter half of this year are now not doing so. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's 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 frustrating to think it's going to be quite some time before we get back on the stage. But a couple of societies have um, made the decision now that, mm. that their productions that were due to be on uh, later this year, th- that they're just not going to be able to go ahead with them. I mean, in, in, in some ways you think it's a bit early with how fast things are moving. But if you think about it, if you're on stage in October, you're probably looking at doing your auditions and starting rehearsals pretty soon, you know, before the end of the summer anyway. And, mm. you know, it's it's hard to gauge, you know, whether audiences would be willing to go and, and sit in a theatre and, and in close confinement, you know, even this side of Christmas or even slightly later. So uh, a, a couple of societies that, that I've seen have officially uh, cancelled is a Carnew Musical Society, Oyster Lane Theatre Group, Port Leash Musical Society, Harold's Cross and Tala, Coolmine and Southeastern. You know, and some of these are quite big names in terms of you know, our last Ames episode. Mm. There's a few nominees there for best overall show, yeah. you know, included in that. So it's tough for them that they're not going to keep that momentum up because obviously if you're in the running for best overall nomination, you've got a seriously talented cast and crew there at your disposal. Yeah. And, you know, on top of that, it's, it's just tough all around because it's hard to gather momentum for fundraising activities or social activities mm. if there's not a show that's going on stage to bring people together um, yeah you know and and it's particularly tough i think compared to societies like newbridge um you know that we're involved in that had to cancel you know we were essentially forced to cancel by mm. the lockdown measures that had happened whereas in yeah. this case it wasn't decision wasn't taken from their hands but at the same time you know if the committee has to look at all of the factors yeah. that yeah, might be, be impacted and make a, a decision on it. It'd be complete madness to try and stage a show. I think. I think this side of Christmas, in a traditional sense. Yeah. I mean, if if you have a massive hall and you're willing to, if you're able to afford to do a show with with you know one sixth or one tenth mm. of your normal audience, because that's probably all you can fit with a two meter social distancing, mm. um, and that's all you would likely attract because lots of people aren't going to take that risk as as you know they probably shouldn't. Yeah. Um, you know, so. You, like we might see some societies being able to do, to do something, but I think mm. for the cost of a full scale musical, typically it, it's just not financially viable to be able to to do that and take that risk on your audience being so low. So it's it's a tough decision, but I, I think it's the right one ultimately. Yeah, I, I think it probably is, and I, I've even seen I think Rash Oath in in recent days made a decision to cancel Lady a Panto and for January. He obviously goes in, into January 2021. They've made a decision to cancel that, which they feel for a variety of reasons, like those you mentioned there, that it just isn't going to be feasible to go ahead. And I think it's it's always a hugely difficult situation to be in where you can't do a show, but I think you're going to have a lot of societies that are going to be, most of the ones you mentioned there, in fact, I think all of the ones you mentioned there, did get to put on a show last year. Yes. But we're now coming into a situation where we obviously don't know what the situation is going to be like come January. Uh, We have obviously the possibility of things not getting better. We also have the possibility of a second wave. I was listening to our friend from the New York Times, Donald G. McNeil Jr., (laughs) who was... Was talking talking about a piece of research by a guy in the University of Minnesota, Professor Michael Osterholm, who had done a study of eight global influenza pandemics since 1763. And in seven of the eight cases, a second wave of the, the outbreak happened 
in a major way about six months after the initial outbreak. So it's a very real possibility that when it gets to this winter, we are going to be in a position where we're going to have another outbreak and that we are going to have another set of restrictive measures. Maybe not lockdown, maybe not that severe again, but certainly there will... there there's a very good probability that there will be significant restrictions still on shows at the end of the year. And that raises the question as to whether many of the societies who had to cancel their show in the post-Christmas period, of course, Newbridge was one of them, and all three of us are on the committee of Newbridge Musical Society, um, but a whole host of societies are in that. And there's a very real possibility that there are societies out there that are actually going to go two years without yeah. putting on a show, it's grim. which is you know, um, an appalling vista, as I think <laughs> the, the quote goes. But we're now in a po- position where I think you had mentioned, Dan, that in a previous episode that we know now from the outset of the season that a lot of societies are going to be affected by this. And to my mind, that raises a question as to whether we're in a distinct position from what we were previously, which is that this happened mid-season, everybody in Ames and the executive and the council wanted to do the right thing. We had two options on the table, or three options on the table, if you include the option of extending the season out over two years, but our other options were basically disregard the season entirely, or allow those who've been adjudicated so far to be nominated and to receive awards, and that is the option that we've ultimately gone for this year. But that was trying to make the best of an incredibly bad situation, choose the least worst option. We're now faced with a situation where we know ahead of time that there are going to be problems with the season. We know that there are going to be an awful lot of societies who don't have an opportunity to put their show on, to have their show adjudicated. And should we be making a decision now at this stage to go we know there are a lot of societies that won't get to be involved in an adjudication scheme this year even if shows can go on after christmas so should we now say well you know what we should just cancel the adjudication scheme ahead of time it's tricky because it's kind of like what is the number of shows that are eligible for adjudication that you know makes the the adjudication scheme still valid because I think yeah. we had two thirds, didn't we, of yeah. something of, around yeah, that yeah. somewhere shows that would have been eligible to, to uh, around. 65. So that's like obviously quite a large portion. Mm. Whereas if you're looking at if it's fifty percent, is that enough for it to be valid? And you know, it it again, it you know, how is that fifty percent split mm. between Gilbert and Sullivan? Have you got most of your Gilbert shows and very few Sullivan? Or you know, like what way is that split happening? Yeah. Have you potentially got a situation where? where we have a window in the season where shows can go ahead. So we have nothing up till Christmas and maybe in February and March it's all clear and, you know, something happens mm. at a similar time to this year and we have April and May are out. And so you've got, you know, only a small window as opposed to half the season. I mean, it'd be nice to think that everyone who didn't get to put on their show in 2020 gets to put theirs on in 2021 and therefore we have a kind of a, you know, an evening of the the scales so that you know the people who Mm. didn't get to be adjudicated this year can be next year and kind of all is well in the world as we go back to 2022 and and it's it's Mm. it's normality taking over hopefully at that stage um but i think 
if it's only one third of societies that are going ahead, if it's even that number, I think it it's a bit ridiculous to, and also with the uncertainty, it, it's 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 hard to see adjudication scheme reasonably going ahead at this point because it's one thing to turn around and say you got cancelled halfway through the season as opposed to societies mm. telling the mm-hmm. Ames Council now look we can't feasibly go ahead it's, it's not financially viable for yeah. us it's not safe for our cast to rehearse at this point mm. you know we don't want to put people at risk in that they're in a room with you know 50 other people and dancing for, for three or four hours at a dance rehearsal or singing and, and acting and kind of in very close proximity as you kind of have to be to just be in a musical like there's very few musicals where all the characters remain two meters apart and yeah. very few stages that can take a full musical society at a two meter distance you know very very uh-huh. few so also, unless you're staging in croke park yeah. <laughs> but i mean is that the only compelling argument to run the adjudication scheme next year in that it might be a form of imperfect justice for the societies who didn't get to put it on i think you'll see people taking that i think a lot of people would probably take that opinion yeah I think, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with you, Adam. I think the big driver of it would be how many people actually get to put on mm. a yeah. show, you know, because, like, you can't do it. You can't do... It was fine this year, like you said, we had, like, over 60 society, 60% mm. societies, you know, and a good good sizable number had put a show on by the time the lockdown came. But I think, yeah, it would be totally different if you only had, like, 20 across the two tiers. Yeah. <laughs> it, would, it would be a little bit different. You'd have you'd have a great night at Ames. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you'd be sure picking would. up all around everybody would be coming away with <laughs> Everybody would be coming away with something. You'd be, every, you'd be in all the categories. Yeah, right? exactly. It'd be like a little bit late, late show. Look under your seats. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> There's an Ames nomination yeah. in there. But, yeah. but I, I, from my perspective, I think had we known ahead of last season what would happen, I don't think we would have gone ahead with the adjudication awards game. I, I think you're just missing, like if you told me that 40% of societies won't get to go ahead, yeah. I my perspective would have been, let's not just do it. Like, let's let's avoid the adjudication award scheme. Let's just let people put on their shows. It was an entirely different situation when we were presented with it halfway through the year. And yeah, we, had to exactly. come up with, we had to come up with a solution. Exactly. So, and I think the other big thing is the uncertainty of it. It's like, it's all well and good that we now predict that you know, everything after Christmas will go ahead or that everything that didn't go ahead last year will go ahead. But we don't know now. Like, there's a strong Mm. chance that there won't be that many societies going ahead. And I think it makes sense probably to just make the call in advance that with the the uncertainty, let's just call it and Mm. let's not do it this year. As opposed to, you know, calling it after you've already adjudicated some, after you've got an adjudicator hired and in place and has been to a couple of shows and, you know, has written up a crit to then later yeah. decide actually no there's not enough societies so those societies who were adjudicated um then don't get an award for it or get a nomination for it it it, it just seems a bit unfair to leave it till halfway through the season yeah. it definitely presents a lot of logistical difficulties to try to manage and to manage the expectations of of societies you know around the country i i, I don't envy being in the position of you know the the aims executive or the council (laughs) but um but certainly while we're having our own problems at home in trying to get to grips with how theater can come back in the midst of this pandemic those problems are not restricted obviously to just the irish scene dan there are an awful lot of uh difficulties being presented on broadway and the west end about how shows will eventually come back and what form they will come back in exactly yeah i mean 
in in the last number of minutes, it's been kind of the ongoing question is kind of like when will theatre kind of you know get back up and running and you know when we talked to Colin O'Regan on the last podcast as well you know you know he was kind of alluding to the same point you know that yeah. and, and we've seen it ourselves that it's very much a case of while you know we're now kind of in a phase of reopening for a lot of societies and economies around the world that theatre is kind of going to be one of the last things to come back yeah um, I think and, that's clear yeah yeah and certainly like you know turns in the last couple of weeks you know the outlook has is is pretty is pretty bleak for the rest of this year anyway I mean like Broadway has pretty much said it's it's not coming back in 2020 mm. you know see you next year kind of thing <laughs> and similarly you know on, on the West End you know like Cameron McIntosh has has said all of his productions you know so that's a lot of the biggest shows in the West End so you're talking yeah. like Les Mis, Phantom, wow. Mary Poppins, Hamilton as well mm. you know they're all under his umbrella and like that like they're all going to be closed till 2021 um, so it, it's not looking good, you know, again, this side of Christmas, but I suppose it kind of leading on really from Cameron McIntosh's announcement, there was a, a bit a bit of a, a furore, a bit of an uproar, you might say, <laughs> uh, surrounding Phantom of the Opera um, in terms of obviously it's staying closed for the rest of the year. But they released a statement then saying that they were going to use this time, uh, you know, this period of extended closure, as as the statement said, you know, that they were going to do a, a bit of kind of reworks, a few bit, a bit of kind of repair work and rejigging both of the theatre itself, Her Majesty's Theatre, where the show has been running since the 1980s, late 80s. Yeah. <laughs> and, but also to the set itself, you know, the, the famous Phantom of the Opera set. Um, as the kind of the phrase that they've used is that they've come to the end of their, you know, natural life mm. and that, you know, mm. a lot of remedial work is needed. Now, this kind of had people, you know, kind of got people's backs up a little bit because Cameron McIntosh does have kind of a history of carrying out remedial works that completely alters everything and changes it as <laughs> from, from what we ever knew before. So uh, obviously, you know, in recent years, it, it was Les Mis. They took out, right. they took out the big revolve on, on the West End set. You know, that, that again has been there since since it opened in the, in the 1980s. Yeah. Um, a very it, iconic piece of the set. You, oh, huge! I mean, it's what it's what people think of yes. often when they. If you say what, tell me about the set of Les Mis. Exactly, they yeah. will say the revolve, the barricade. It's it's something that is a huge part of the imagery and the visual impact of that show. Mm-hmm. And like that, you know, they took out again. It, it was a theater and a set that needed a lot of work. Hmm. So it closed for a short while. It moved across the road to the Gielgud Theatre as a concert version. While they carried out these reworks to both the theatre and to the set, uh, they brought in the touring set Hmm. from the UK and Ireland tour, which obviously doesn't have a revolve. For obvious reasons, touring sets have to be much more, you know, transportable and Mm -hmm. far far less time consuming to put together. It needs to kind of, you know, come in and come out fairly quickly. And so it it takes out the revolve. It's more kind of stuff moving in from the sides, like a lot of of stuff on tracks and the sets kind of move in and move out. And it's very impressive to watch. I saw it when it came to Dublin. It was very good, but it it, it doesn't have the same as the revolve, you know, that constant spinning of the revolve, you know, that is lost. And so people are kind of worried that, you know, something similar might occur for Phantom the Opera, you know, and I suppose kind of one of the, the main set pieces for that show is the big chandelier. Yes. You know, which obviously, you know, it comes in at the very opening of the show, you know, during the auction piece of it, you know, and then obviously the closing of Act One when it when it swings out over the audience, which is a pretty pretty epic moment in the show. It's like amazing. You know, like you know, if you've ever been to see it. Like I yeah. I mean, like I, I went to see that show on Broadway, that moment when that chandelier comes down at the end of Act One is spectacular. <laughs> you know, it really is. 
but the set I think like I haven't seen either Les Mis or Phantom on, on in a professional setting but like like definitely with Phantom it is all anyone I know talks about afterwards is the set yeah the, the chandelier and the boat when he's rowing across the stage is just like people are you know gobsmacked like before they mentioned singing which is also fantastic but it's yeah. the set is the first thing that that you know that you know makes people's minds explode yeah. while they're watching that show oh i mean absolutely <laughs> like that moment where he's rowing across he you know he takes christine down to the lake under under the theater and he is rowing that boat across the mist and the chandeliers are rising up out of the stage i mean even if you look at the 25th anniversary albert royal albert hall version which is a great production starring uh ramen carmelu and sierra bogas but like all i think of when i think of that version is that the chandeliers didn't come out of the stage <laughs> in the do, royal albert hall could do with a few more chandeliers like yeah. they they didn't they they had a screen at the back and there were images of chandeliers projected exactly. but it's just like that moment is sort of it's almost the moment in the show where the set comes alive mm-hmm. yeah. and it is so engrossing and captivating and to think that you might try to alter the set to make it more straightforward or more similar to a touring set, because I know Phantom is on a UK and Ireland tour at the moment and had been due to play here in the board gosh in June and July. Mm. Obviously, that is not now going ahead. But but I get the idea of trying to create a consistency. If you think of it's something that Colm actually mentioned in the last podcast is that these shows are brands. Exactly. And obviously, you would want, like any product, a certain consistency in the experience that people have, whether it's on tour or whether it's on the West End or Broadway or or wherever. But I think part of the attraction of going to see a show on the West End and Broadway is is that it is that little bit more magical. Yeah. Because the performers are great typically wherever you go. But the set is so is generally so much better on the Broadway and the West the space, End. The, the technical tech, yeah aspects of the show are general and i've seen stuff in the board gosh i mean i saw hairspray in the board gosh and it was a great production but it was pretty much you know a three black box production (laughs) there was very little set coming in and out and that's often to try to keep the money up on tour that's what you're going to try and minimize those set requirements down to like people i think want to go see a really visually spectacular show when they go to the west end so i would be both surprised and disappointed if Cameron McIntosh or indeed any other uh, West End producer was taking a view that, well, actually, we don't need to. We can just minimize it. <laughs> like I went to see, I remember I seeing Mean Girls on Broadway and, and Mean Girls is an okay show, but the, like the entire back is just a TV screen. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, all, it's, it's, it's projections. It's a, stuff, it's a yeah. concave TV screen, yeah. basically. And they take in, so like a door frame wheels in, to, and or a bed wheels in to signal and then obviously on the screen at the back is just an image of a bedroom and mm. y- for me like definitely i, I don't know my, my mind works in analog i kind of go oh, i do, i, w- I want to see a bit more than yeah. that you know i really do want to see a bit more because and i think it, it look it probably suits me and girls because it's it's a bit brash and poppy and and it, it you're not trying to compare it to maybe the, I suppose the, the opulence maybe of a a Parisian the, yeah. opera house in the 19th century, which is where Phantom of the Opera is set. 
But for me, I would hate to see shows go that direction. Yeah. I'd be eager to hear if Android Weber has anything to say about them, like, tinkering with his baby. Mm. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Now, he did. He did. He was on Twitter kind of saying, I think the words that he used were that he, he'll do everything in his power to oh, ensure right. that when Phantom returns, <laughs> it is the brilliant original. <laughs> Which again isn't the most. It, it doesn't feel it with confidence. No, no, <laughs> no. It sounds a bit like he's playing both sides there. Well, yeah, it? he's kind of covering himself, yeah. being like, "Well, I tried, but they just they just forced my it's hand." Kind of, it's kind of like what you might say in work, where you're not confident of meeting a deadline. Yeah. I will do everything in my power <laughs> to ensure that this. Comes. But also, set yourself, brace yourself for disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> Fairly shortly coming your way, <laughs> you know. And I think, yeah, and like you said, it's it's such. I mean, it's such an iconic show. And it's it's mm. like it's one of those rare occasions where the set it doesn't it doesn't become the show like it's not so technically impressive that you're like I don't remember a single thing they said or sang but my god that set was amazing <laughs> or yeah. equally that it's just you know like a black box and it's just complete like it could be anywhere it's completely inconsequential it's a perfect synergy of when the material on stage and the actors are brilliant and it merges and it's just it just enhances that it's like let's just do this in a way that just makes it so spectacular. Mm. And I I mean, look, it's obviously at the end of the day, it is somebody's job. And I'm sure if you're, you know, working with a 30-year-old set that's, you know, built in the 1980s, they're probably still, you know, fucking use dial-up or like <laughs> buttons. Like, you know, it's like, watch, it's like watching old, like it's like watching Captain America, the first Avenger. And then yeah. it's like lever pulling and like just yeah. calling out random percentages. Like, you know, I know. Like the, yeah. the, the chandelier contract. descends on a Windows <laughs> ME command. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and it's just There's actually sandbags out the back. Yeah. yeah. Just <laughs> cut, 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 go, go. But um, so obviously, you know, you would appreciate as, as in everybody's job, you would like to make your job easier in any way you can. And obviously that takes different forms. But I hope it's not I hope it's not a case of like, you know, people just being blind of like, let's just try and make this, you know, really simple for ourselves. Like, you know, go out and ask, you know, I hope they reach out to people who actually sit in the audience. Be like, well, what's what does it mean to you? Because mm. I'm pretty sure a lot of people will tell you, but the set is unbelievable. Yeah. It's yeah. just amazing. It's such a spectacle. And, you know, I feel at some level by, you know, if you take Les Mis as the example, getting rid of the Revolve and bringing in a touring set, which again uses, you know, like Mean Girls, there's a lot of kind of screens and projections mm. as well as actual moving pieces that come in and out. But there is a lot of projection work with it. And it's like, yes, fine. It's very, it's simple. It's easy to fix if it goes wrong. You know, it's probably not very temperamental. But does it have the same kind of magic to it? Not really sure. Jury's out. And yeah. I think they have to kind of keep that in mind this time. Having said that, there seems to be far more uproar about this than when they did this to live, or from what I remember, maybe because we're all in, just coming out of lockdown. It's yeah, yeah. it's <laughs> the perfect we've time. More time in our hands. It's the perfect the time internet. to re- research these things and be like, I feel very strongly about this. <laughs> I have an opinion, and you're going to know. But um, the internet tends to feel strongly about things. Yes, yeah. it has a lot of opinions. But you know, if people want to, there is a petition out there to oh. be signed for keeping the original Phantom the way it is, mm. and you can go and find that, and you can sign it if you want to tell Cameron McIntosh where he can take his efficiencies and you know <laughs> all those all those things that make the numbers work yeah, that he keep pre- producing your, all these shows get out of here with your modernization exactly no i want a lavish over-the-top expensive and astronomically impossible to maintain sets do it now <laughs> <laughs> exactly so cameron if you are listening please get in touch with us by email at the at oddtheater.com and even if you're not cameron mcintosh we would still encourage you to get in touch. Also, reach out to us on social media at the Oddcast by Odd Theatre. 
And that brings us to our feature of today's episode, where we take a look at the past 10 years of the Association of Irish Musical Societies awards and adjudication scheme to look at the shows, the parts and the societies who have tended to win big over this this past decade. And we've chosen this past decade because if you go back further, you start to encounter a lot of shows that were available at that time, but doesn't include shows which have subsequently become available, the likes of Sister Act and The Addams Family, for example. So we've isolated it to those 10 years because I think it gives you a much more modern picture of what is being nominated. But still gives us a, you know, a fairly big sample size compared to if we just did the last five years, to quote Jason Robert Brown. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so for example, like that's going to include 100 shows that have been nominated for Best Overall because you have five yeah. in Gilbert, five in Sullivan, that's 10 a year, 10 years. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's 100. So you're, like, it is a big... That's fast It's a big sample yeah. size. And obviously, yeah. <laughs> two plus two is four. Quick maths. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously, like, in the individual categories where you three, that's going to be a sample size of 60. Yeah. So it's pretty, it's pretty robust. And I think it gives us a pretty... Pretty good picture. I know this is like, I'm going to get burned as a witch by Dan now. <laughs> I'm the accountant here and this is blowing my mind. I'm like, wow. So, so it, 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 is, it is pretty good. And we're, look, we're going to do this in two parts because there's an awful lot of material to get through. And we wanted to concentrate, I think, in the first part on the shows that sort of the, the more overall production level awards so we're going to look at best overall and we're going to look at the production team awards best director best musical director and best choreographer slash choreography because there's been a a change in in that award the way that's been categorized over the past number of years and also we're going to take a look at best course because that is again something which kind of speaks to the overall production yeah as a whole it's it's not an individual award uh, so I suppose it makes sense to start with best overall since yeah. since that is, is is kind of the the one that everyone wants the most in terms of, of awards. This uh, is true. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, we are to we're, put it eloquently. We're, <laughs> yeah, we're going to take a shift from what normal broadcast programming would be to not wait for the juiciest bit until the very end of the episode. We're yeah. going to give you what you want to hear right up front. Well, that's what Absolutely. we have to do at Ames every year. We have to wait until the very end. Yeah. For our best overall. You have to sit through like hours of dinner and other awards. Yeah. No. Yeah. Do it straight away. Yeah. Yeah. Do it when I'm sober enough to remember. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> anyway. Well, go on. Tell us, Adam. What, <laughs> so, what have been the big winners of best overall? So the runaway winner with five nominations and three wins. Um, and on top of those three wins, it has come as runner up and a third place. So it has never been nominated and not come away with some sort of prize or best overall mm. in the last 10 years is Michael Collins, which wow. is which is like quite a good hit rate considering I don't think it's been around that long as a musical. And it's probably not one that's performed that often. So the fact that there are five productions of it have been nominated for best overall show in the last 10 years is like it's it's one every two years essentially and then three of those are winners um you know just behind it with five nominations as well but not as many wins is jesus christ superstar and sweeney todd right but the interesting thing with sweeney todd is it has been nominated five times for best overall show uh in the last 10 years but has never won which wow. i think is <laughs> is it's quite surprising because it is, it is surprising. like it is one of those shows that when you think of aims uh, sweeney todd is, is one that, that would come up there because 
you know it's 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 quite a challenging show it's it's a it's a drama uh, it ticks a lot of boxes in terms of things you tend to think of when it comes to aims winning shows and, and uh, critical acclaim um some of the other ones in in the in the you know the top of the table uh, the witches of eastwick evita uh jekyll and hyde and beauty and the beast have all been nominated four times mm. um so that is uh, the top seven there you have three with five nominations and then four with four nominations each yeah um, so those are the shows that are most commonly nominated for best overall show um and i think like the first thing that strikes me about that is that for the most part those are quite dark shows or quite heavy dramas i mean yeah. even like to look back at the top three michael collins jesus christ superstar and sweeney todd the main character dies in all three mm-hmm. of those shows <laughs> which is you know? pretty unusual for a musical it is for your main <laughs> character to die <laughs> it uh, is it's a strange one in a musical and you know like there, there are some others obviously um yeah. ghost yeah. Lit- yeah. little shop well um, ghost i think has has has, has the distinction of having your main character die pretty early in the musical <laughs> yeah it, it does it does happen pretty pretty but early I, on i think if you're going to ghost and you're not expecting someone to die <laughs> yeah yeah you, you've, clearly, you've clearly misread the title it's actually just you a thought mu- it was goats <laughs> it's just a musical all about people not responding to your texts <laughs> um, <laughs> that's fantastic that was really good um, it was I mean, like, like even as you go below that, which is Eastwick is probably the only one, and Beauty and the Beast actually is up there as well, which mm. aren't dramas per se, but uh, more like, comedies. The Witches of Eastwick is definitely in the you know the category of dark comedy. Yes, you know it's it you know compared to Beauty and the Beast, which is an out and out you know kids film. But again, um, that has never won best overall show, Beauty and the Beast, despite having four nominations. Mm. Um, yeah, which which is a strange one that has been nominated so many times and not won, but at the same time. It would. It's it's one of the ones that would surprise me as being at the top of the table. I was going to say, yeah. I mean, I don't. I don't know why. Because if you like, it's a it's a pretty big ask of a show. It's a massive, massive set, yeah. Massive costumes. You know, some challenge, tough things. challenge and singing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you've got a wide, a large ensemble. You know, yeah. loads of parts. Again, kind of the whole because it's originally I mean, it's really difficult. Movie. I mean, if you're trying to play a clock on exactly. Stage, I was going to say, like you know, you're trying to when recreate you get your inspiration something. for that. Yeah, yeah, you're trying to recreate something that somebody was able to draw. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, I, I think. I mean, I think we said this before about like the Disney musicals, but you you get like when when these things get moved to Broadway, the producers get put in a situation of going, well, it doesn't. It's not how you would write a show. You would yeah. never write a dancing place. <laughs> yes. But you got here. You have to make it work. Yeah. We're putting it on a Broadway, so make it work. Yeah. So it's a huge ask for an amateur society. Yeah. So it is surprising, I think, that that, that has it's no surprise that it has four nominations. It is surprising that it has no wins. Yeah. But yeah. again, like I think if you think about Ames Awards, Beauty and the Beast is probably not the first show you think of. No. Like you not wouldn't a, think no, it to no. be, you know, in, in the same like with the same number of nominations as the likes of Evita. Which again has yeah. a lot of the same yeah. a massive chorus, lots of parts, lots of difficult singing, um, and a protagonist who dies at both the start and the end. Yeah, <laughs> double whammy. True. <laughs> you only die twice, sir. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever that James Bond movie is. <laughs> well, it's it's sort of the opposite, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. never die twice. <laughs> never not. Not ju- what I was going for. <laughs> <laughs> never not for, die today again. For, for, for tomorrow. For anybody who's trying to rent, you never die twice. Uh, you might need to look for you only live, live twice. Uh, <laughs> you old. <laughs> Um, uh, which was um, Pierce Brosnan, oh, I think, isn't it? You only live twice. No, Sean Connery. Oh, uh, and of course, a hit for 
I think Nancy Sinatra. Yes, as well. Ah, yes, I, was trying, I, I could hear. Yeah. I can hear it in my head. I'm like, uh. I think I was thinking of Never Say Never Again. Or no, that's not. That's <laughs> okay. Never Say Never Again is still Sean Connery. Oh. And <laughs> is, that, is that the one okay. that's not actually that's, part that's, of the that's canon? The one that's not made by Eon Productions. Yeah. This so is in, why I am not co-host of a James Bond movie podcast. <laughs> it was. There, you can go read about this, but it's it's one that was made for a separate company due to a rights issue around the script for Thunderball. So it's a retelling of the Thunderball story, but a, a, a different movie with, with Sean Connery and also Rowan Atkinson. Bizarre. Yeah. Wow. Sort of. Yeah, uh, in the 80s, I think, wasn't it? It was early 80s, that, yeah, that yeah, film, I think. Because I... I, cause I, I uh, it was 1983, I think. Yeah, because I think. I think Sean Connery was the spanner in the works for my table quiz question about the only Bond to have played, or the only Bond actors who have played James Bond in three different decades. And I had in my head yeah. it was going to be Daniel Craig because he was not, he's 2010s. And mm. then the movie Juice come out, which would have been 2020s. Mm-hmm. Um, but Sean Connery was in that unofficial Bond in the 80s, which yeah. so made him have three consecutive decades of 60s, 70s uh, and 80s. He is. Like for anybody who thought that Sean Connery was kind of getting along by Diamonds Are Forever, which yeah. I think was like 72. Yeah, it was <laughs> full 10 years later. <laughs> he's, he's definitely pushing on in, in Never Say Never Again. <laughs> But probably no older than Roger Moore was when you know when he was finishing no, up his bond. No, in fact, Connery <laughs> Connery's was younger than Roger Moore by about a year or two. Yeah. And Never Say Never Again was, I think, two or three years before uh, uh, Roger Moore's final movie, which was the one with Christopher Walken. Oh, um, yes. View to a Kill. View to a Kill. Grace Jones, yes. um, yeah, as well, Walken. and oh. uh, and absolutely cracking. Duran uh, Duran, isn't it? Duran Duran, yeah. 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 So Bond I think we're, we're all waiting with bated breath for the uh, James Bond jukebox musical, which has all of the Bond themes and tells a James Bond story. Sorry, just, that is an absolutely brilliant idea. <laughs> Thank you. I have, I have the interns running down to the patent office with it right now. <laughs> Get down to Professor yeah. Patent Pending. No, it's, it's definitely not a real thing. And, you know, when it is a thing and the, and the rights are out, I'm hopeful that it would be in the top. You know, ten. Well, I was about to say that once that comes out, we can put all these spreadsheets in the bin yeah. because that you is found your new winner. That is yeah. that's going to be well tracking well ahead of Michael Collins. It's a surefire hit. <laughs> well, we never know. I mean, like Michael Collins also has that Irish connection, not only in the subject matter, mm. um, but the fact that Brian Flynn uh, is an Irish man who wrote it. Yes, um, and so I think I think that's a reason that that people tend to really connect with that. In that, it's it's definitely it's 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 a local interest show. Uh, and I think for sure, I think productions peaked in 2016 with the centenary of the Easter Rising, and I'd say we can expect to see them yeah. peak again in you know you know in the next few years if we're able to get on stage. Mm. You know, with 1921, 22 being the anniversary, the hundred anniversary of the War of Independence, and Michael Collins' yeah. death as well was 1922. So, it, you know, if it, we're able to get on stage in the next couple of years, I, I we can only expect to see more productions of Michael Collins, and mm. you know, based on past evidence, more of them. It kind nominated of, and winning. It kind of has, because obviously it's not a, a, a sung through musical or, or an operetta in the same way Hamilton is. But it only struck me last night when watching Hamilton that the similarities being there between, you know, Michael Collins and Hamilton, not not so much because it's it's a founding father story. But I think that in order to probably get the most out of it, you probably need to understand to some degree the history or have a familiarity yeah. with the history behind it. I think it, it, I think the likes of Michael Collins is going to be an entertaining show, maybe wherever you're from in the world, but it's going to have particular resonance if you're 
if you're Irish. It will have a certain emotionality, maybe. It definitely. I mean, yeah. And I think anyone who has been to school in Ireland, you know, at any level will have a pretty strong understanding of, of that history or mm. at least a pretty strong knowledge of what did and didn't happen. Um, the thing that did strike me, though, so obviously we've mentioned that that the shows that tend to get nominated from those top seven, that they're big shows and that they're, they tend to be quite heavy dramas and that there's, there's mm. death and there's dark themes being explored, even in, you know, the comedy like Witches of Eastwick. Um, but there's not a lot of classics, as I would call them. Yeah. Um, in that list. I mean, I think the oldest show there, I think, is probably Jesus Christ Superstar. Yeah. Uh, and that's only the 70s. Um, it, it's, yeah, it, it that is definitely, it's the oldest show. And it, but it's also not a show that you in your head, you you think classic show or no, old that's show. True. Because it's a rock show and therefore it feels more modern. You're It's not yeah. the Ra- Rodgers and Hammerstein, Rodgers no. and Hart, Lerner and Lowe. Yeah. You know, like if I'm looking at the list, even shows that have had three nominations here and there are five listed out, Oliver, The Adams Family, Little Shop of Horrors, Sister Act and All Shook Up. Like Oliver, that Lionel Bart yeah. musical, is about the only show out of out of the, the top, you know, top 12 top there, yeah. 12, 13 that actually is might be considered a classic show yeah. within people's you know common conception of what that term means. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, of course, the Lionel Bart um, music and lyrics um, and you have to look much further down the table to find uh, the likes of Rodgers and Hammerstein or Lerner and Lowe or even Gilbert and Sullivan yeah. who obviously are the, the namesakes of the two categories because I think. like there are some there are some really amazing reveals in here for people who think that like really commonly performed shows that, that to my mind are performed nearly every year yeah, that have um, maybe one nomination beside them. So, like Guys and Dolls, one nomination. Joseph and His Amazing Technical Dreamcoat, one nomination. Yeah. Um, West Side Story, one nomination for Best Overall. Yeah, it's incredible. Is, it, you know, it. You look at that and you go, that that's that's kind of wild. Yeah, you know? and I think there are only three Rodgers and Hammerstein shows have been nominated in the last ten years. It's The Sound of Music, mm. The King and I, and Carousel, and they each only have one nomination apiece. I think. Because I went looking for Oklahoma because I think when when I think of amateur musical societies, Oklahoma tends to be the one I think of as being yeah. most frequently performed. And it, it last won Best Overall Show in 2007. Right. When it was Gory Musical Society. And, and it hasn't been nominated since then. Which is so, like absolutely amazing when you think of that. I, I'm certain there's there are a number of Oklahomas performed every year. And obviously we're, we're looking at the period from... 2010 to 2019 because we're we're only looking at yeah. uh shows that have completed the full nominations to awards so we, we haven't taken into account what's happened in in 2020 but of course oklahoma isn't nominated in, no. in 2020 no. and I, I think the only one that we've mentioned of of the kind of the classics and older shows would be joseph which yeah. obviously at loan got a nomination for best overall show did it dan i believe it did <laughs> i believe it did i was there <laughs> as as Athlone's own Joseph exactly. absolutely in the flesh in the flesh um, but is that not kind of like I don't know isn't that kind of a little bit dangerous you know people are kind of viewing it and kind of like okay so classic shows that don't get me nominated for best overall yeah they have a perceivance among like you know people who are into it it's like oh Jesus you're doing you're doing really you're doing cars mm. oh, God, that's so boring like you know yeah, yeah. is it not then kind of calling out for like okay well you know, this is crying out for someone to come and take it and be like, right, let's try and make these shows exciting again. Let's try and do something 
a bit different, a bit special with these. Is it's, that what is that what it takes, or is it just people are like oh, they're just so boring? We've seen it, and like you know, is it a case of no matter what you do? I I think it's one of the I I think there's a lot in that because if I go back to you know episode five, which was the Ames nomination show that we did, and we looked at some of the things that were nominated for best overall, um, take Cracks Little Shop of Horrors for example, or Joseph in Athlone, they tended to be shows, okay, both both those shows are older shows in the sense that they're pre-1990, but they were done in very different ways. So in the case of Cracks Little Shop of Horrors, they kind of set it in this cartoon land or comic book land, almost. They don't try to go for a more realistic setting. Or oh, realistic setting is always difficult when there's a talking plant involved. It's true. It's true. But <laughs> they don't, they don't try and do that. Likewise, Joseph takes a show which is classically set in, in the time of antiquity and in, in biblical time, but it resets it, Athlone's version, in, in a modern setting and focuses on the idea of climate action and environmental sustainability as the overarching theme. And you you kind of, looking at this list, you're kind of thinking adjudicators are only going to, or w- are likely only to reward those older shows for best overall if you're going to bring something new to the table. Yeah. Because it's, you. this list is very, very heavily skewed on best overall towards more nominations for shows which are more modern. Absolutely. Or are elite, at the very least kind of more rock shows moving away from, I suppose, that classic legit style. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And I think shows that are absent altogether on top of Oklahoma, you have My Fair Lady, which I think doesn't get a nomination at all, which oh is God. another big show. And it's, it's a fantastic show. And it's a very difficult show to do. Yeah. Um, I don't want to see that in a modern version. Though. Am, I, am I crazy? <laughs> I don't want to see it. I don't want to, I don't want <laughs> I to see I right. want to see Ascot Givet. Yeah, uh, I probably full. I probably just prefer to go see Pygmalion. You know, like, <laughs> maybe that's just me. Get but <laughs> get out of your own home. George, George, George Bernard Shaw, completely unencumbered with music. Ooh, I'm not sure I would agree that My Fair Lady encumbers the story of music. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I like I, I I think like what's interesting as well is like obviously over the last ten years between both the Gilbert and Sullivan categories, we're not looking at any one uh, like we're not looking at any one adjudicator or pair of adjudicators in that time period true, true. And we're definitely looking at you know a good spread of different people taking the baton of the adjudicators um, and and I think it does show there is if not a conscious bias to, to, to nominate the more modern shows or the more kind of fresh interpretations of the classics then there's definitely an unconscious bias because it's, it's very heavily skewed towards you know those more modern or you know which which is a strange thing because compared to say the tonys of the drama desk yes it's not like you're awarding the actual writers or the original you know a conception yeah. of the show like these are all amateur productions and in a lot of cases people are trying to um replicate in as much as is possible the original production of yeah. of you know the professional shows and so it kind of shows you're at a disadvantage in terms of, you know, award recognition where you're doing a classic show and are trying to replicate it faithfully because it just seems that there are more nominations and more wins going to 
the more daring shows. And so yeah. the question is, should adjudicators be, you know, solely focused on the production mm. value itself as opposed to the material? Because short of the committee choosing the show, yeah, the musical society has no say over whether it's a drama or a comedy or, you know, the details of the story. But yeah. you, you've hit on a really interesting point there, which is that, like, your difference between your ability as an amateur, amateur musical society to perform My Fair Lady faithfully to the Broadway production and Jesus Christ Superstar or Little Shop of Horrors or, you know, Evita faithfully to the Broadway production are going to be very, very different. Yeah, because My, My Fair Lady will require the spending of probably twice the budget of Jesus Christ Superstar. And that's solely on the musicians alone. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. like these old shows, like the Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, the, the all the Rodgers and Hammerstein's, they were all scored for like 20-piece orchestras. Yeah. And they were orchestras. There was like wind, strings, percussion sections. It's not, <laughs> like there's no guitar or bass to be found unless it's an upright bass, you know, yeah. in any of those older shows. But so, so is it is it a case then that, I mean, if, if you're a committee and you're sitting down and you're choosing a show, you're sort of saying, I am not going to be rewarded by an adjudicator for trying to do a version of My Fair Lady that doesn't have maybe all of the bells and whistles that the professional productions do. And so I should really tend to go towards a show that's just easier to put on on a lower budget. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, I don't think that there's anyone out there whose sole reason for doing musical theatre is for the Ames Awards recognition. I think most people, it's a passion project and it's a, it's a hobby. Well, I bloody well hope You not. know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, like, there's definitely a thing where it's one piece of the puzzle when you're choosing a show. Everyone would like to get an Ames Award. Or if you're of course, someone, of course. you know, there are lots of people who are committed solely to one musical society and who only do that show every year, whatever mm-hmm. it may be. But there are other people out there who, you know, like to hop between societies in, in the same area. And so if you're looking at two shows on at the same time and you have to choose one, you know, like the show itself might feature. And I think we might touch on mm. that in more detail when we're looking at the individual awards for, for acting in, and singing. in the next episode. But, yeah. but I think as a committee that that is, you know, it's featuring as part of the conversation, of course, it you is. know, if not framing it. Um, I suppose actually just while we're on best overall show, one thing that we looked at as well was what other awards that um, the show that wins best overall is nominated for or wins. Sure. And there are uh, three musical societies in particular I want to call out for over the past 10 years have not won a single other award on the night at Ames, but then picked up the trophy for best overall show. So most as recently... Over, as in overall, overall. As in they won best overall show but didn't win a single other award on the night. Tell me more. Oh, wow. Tell so me more. most recently was last year, 2019, in the Sullivan section, Oyster Lane Theatre Group put on Michael Collins. Now, they got four other nominations, so five nominations total, mm. so one for best overall and four other nominations, but no other wins. That's yeah. amazing, because <laughs> if, you're, if you're sitting there having gone zero from four <laughs> up, up to the best overall you've got to be sitting there pretty glum going yeah this this isn't happening for us you know, absolutely like you've had the disappointment of seeing your friends and you know your your castmates mm. uh you know standing up on the stage and and you know it's a disappointing feeling i'm sure to be up on the stage and 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 have the award go to somebody else so to be you know like 
sitting there and thinking, oh, and you know, the exact same thing happened in 2016 when Tullamore Musical Society did Witches of Eastwick. Mm. Uh, again, four of the nominations, no other wins. Um, and so, and but then picked up, up overall. overall. Um, and then, you know, the biggest shout out has to go to St. Mary's in Navan when mm. they did Little Shop of Horrors back in 2012. So not only did they not win any other awards, but they didn't pick up a single other nomination. So that on the day when what? nominations were announced, if any of them were at the Choral Festival down in New Ross and were, or if they were tuning in on Periscope or, or, or whatever other streaming service that there was uh, at the time, uh, live streaming. What year was that? The nomination, 2012. Oh, so you so, didn't dial up back then. I think it was. <laughs> well, they definitely were in New I think down. actually I, you had to run up to the own stone <laughs> to see what the nominations were. Exactly. Uh, I, think, I think that was the year when they stopped lighting the beacons from New Ross <laughs> out to the, around the rest of the country. Yeah, I actually, yeah, I think it is because the Huns had raided part of the wall <laughs> and it was in disrepair. It made a nice change from the Vikings, I'm sure. Um, no, Friday is <laughs> the spice of life, even if you're getting raided. Indeed. But, St. Mary's in Navan, so you would have been disheartened. You might have decided you're not going to go to Ames. I mean, like, you'd like to think people would go anyway with no nominations. Mm. I think we talked about this, you know, in the context of shows that didn't get to go on or shows that didn't get to be adjudicated. But, you know, in a normal year, you would think you would go anyway because you'd have friends in oh, other yeah. societies. But, you know, no nominations. And then on the Friday night, they would have been announced as being nominated for best overall show. And then and you must be thinking, well, that's lovely to get, but... <laughs> We didn't get nominated for anything else, so we hardly were yeah, the best yeah. show. And then they won. So That's incredible. <laughs> so Jeez. I can, you know, I can only imagine the surprise and elation over, you know, like winning best overall mm. show with no other nominations. That's- that's insane. It is. It is that's sort insane. of crazy. That's actually. It's beyond even. That's hilarious. Like that's gas. Oh my god. But that's like actually, not considered crazy. to be in like the top three for any Anything. category. And then, and but then not even to like, be like you. you you must like, have got a hell of a lot of number four spots. That's a like speak, yeah. You must have yeah, owned exactly, number yeah. four. <laughs> number exactly, four yeah. across the board. Participation exactly. certificate. <laughs> Extraordinaire. That's insane. But I, can't, I, I think because it has like I, I'm aware of it. Like I think Cool Mine last year, for example, was not nominated. Yeah, again, for anything sim- similar to that. But, but it was nominated for best overall. Now it didn't yeah, win. It best didn't overall, win best overall. But yeah, it was. But again, that was another one where we were all sitting yeah. there at Ames with our little score sheets and kind of going, <laughs> well, who do we think is going to win or who do we yeah. think is going to get best overall? I mean, we would, you would never have seen that nomination coming with no, no other previous nominations. No, absolutely. Uh, but I, it goes to show that, that in, in the business of show, you know, it's often this, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. You know, it's, it's, it's that's not energy, about... <laughs> <laughs> it's not about having just the best actors or just the best you know, musical director. Mm. It's about having that blend of talents um, and about having everyone playing off each other and, and raising each other up mm. and creating that fantastic show. Uh, and like, I suppose on that, um, the awards that were most awarded in tandem with best overall show. The things that's heavily correlated to. Yeah. yeah. Now, like there's not one runaway winner here, uh, but it's musical director and director are the, you know, it, so if you've won best overall show, you have most likely picked up, if anything else, your musical director or your director awards. So four... Awards the, or nominations? Uh, the awards themselves. The awards themselves. Yeah. So four... So a win. Yes. A, a win is a predictor. Absolutely. Yeah. So if so if you've won Best Musical Director and or Best Director, you're in with a decent enough chance of then picking up the best overall compared to people who didn't. But it's not a guaranteed predictor. It's, it's not that, you know, 90%. Yeah. It was only 20% actually picked up MD 
and or director um, in the same year as, as winning best overall show. But I think, you know, when you take that and you look at the societies or the shows, should I say, that have won best director over the last 10 years, it kind of makes sense because you can see that, again, Michael Collins is topping the leaderboard with five nominations for best director and two wow. wins. Yeah. So, it you know, it's the case that, you know, some of those nominations were the same year as, as best overall mm. and they would have picked up best overall one year and not director for a production of, of Michael Collins and vice versa another year. Yeah. Um, but it's, 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 it's heavily correlated, which goes to show, yeah. again, if you're nominating a show for best overall show, the director is pretty central to that because director feeds into everything else. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it is probably hard at times to disaggregate the effect of the director from let's say everything else that feeds into being a best overall show so what effect did the director have in influencing the visual presentation of it what effect did the director have informing the performances of people on stage some people come i mean we've all done a lot of shows sometimes you see people who turn up on the day and they just give brilliant performances and it's of their own devising and sometimes those brilliant performances are as a result of very heavy work with the director yeah. And so it's often difficult to know where that divide sits in a show between the work that, let's say, your stage manager has done in coming up with the technical and visual presentation of the show yeah. versus, let's say, the director's influence in providing a kind of coherent vision for how it looks and then trying to communicate that. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I think that shows us, you know, and why it's only 20% of shows that have won best overall that have also won Best Director. Right. Because I, I, I think it, it's just hard if you're sitting in an audience to tell, you know, what choices were made by the director versus what ones were made by individual performers. Yeah. So it, it doesn't always go hand crew. in hand. Yeah. Exactly. Or or your lighting designer or your, you know, yeah. like any of those other pieces of the puzzle. Uh, similarly to Michael Collins being up at the top of the leaderboard, Jesus Christ Superstar is up there again with three wins from four nominations for Best Director. Mm-hmm. So again, it's it's a case That's, that, yeah. that it, it's a similar show for similar reasons. Uh, we're seeing the Adams family, which is near enough the top. I think it's got three nominations for best overall show. Yeah, it's got three nominations for best director as well, with two wins uh, from that. So that that's definitely one that's emerging in more recent years compared to some of those shows, which, which are kind of consistent across the past ten years. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, kind of slightly more surprising is that Oliver, which has three nominations for best overall show, mm-hmm. also has three nominations for best director, but has won twice of those three times. And right. Sound of Music has got a win for Best Director when it's quite mm. low on it's it's had one nomination for Best Overall Show mm. and yeah. and has never won. So But like we come back to Oliver again and Oliver obviously we highlighted that is probably the only really like truly classic show which yeah. is kind of up there with three best overall nominations. But again, quite heavy a lot of Oliver. I mean I think everybody thinks of Oliver and they think of, you know, consider yourself and yeah. kind of the the happy go lucky, but it's it's quite a tragic and dark story. Despite those lighter moments, so there's children in it. It couldn't possibly, I, I, be, <laughs> couldn't possibly be evil. Yes, it is. I know, yes. but but there's you know there's a, an awful lot of death and violence in that there's show. Hell, there's a hell of a lot of it. So absolutely, and and depending on how you direct it, you know it, it and like what you consider as being your target audience, you can play the Nancy Bill Sykes relationship in a number of different ways. Of course, you know you can see productions of it where they deliberately try and make it much more cartoony, and and they pull it back. So yes. That, He's not nice to her and it's obvious, you know, to motivate, you know, her reason for, you know, disobeying him, let's say, at the end. But they don't go, you know, all in on on the realism of, of what that relationship is, which is yeah. essentially it's it's 
a textbook version of, of domestic abuse. And in some productions, you could decide, no, this is a really important issue. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's not something that's resigned to Victorian London. It's something that's happening now. And so we need to kind of present that mm, warts and mm. all. So depending on your director, so you can see how how there are still, despite the fact that it's a children's musical in inverted commas. Yeah. It's, but it's there's one an awful lot of for scope for a director. Yeah. Yes. To that exactly. point. Yeah. Exactly. And equally, Fagan is, you know, depending on on the, the vision you have of the show, he's a charming, you know, ragamuffin who, who <laughs> you know, who, who, who has this, he's like the Pied Piper for like yeah. London Street Kids. But there's, you know, like there's definitely scope to take a more dark approach to that because mm. there is that thing. Yeah. If you say that he is essentially coercing perhaps and exhorting it's, these orphans to... I mean, carry out criminality yeah introducing ch- children at a young age to a life of crime well yeah. done fagan yeah absolutely uh, he's not all you know charm <laughs> i suppose just on that the only other thing that's worth mentioning on the best overall in tandem with director is that there used to be a category in in 2010 and previously for what was then the pre-1935 slash modern opera so yeah it was separate to the best overall show so you would tend to see gilbert and sullivan being awarded there um, and Jesus Christ Superstar was in that category because it counted as a modern opera, despite so of course they had amalgamated those two things yeah. as being kind of you know an acknowledgement that most pre nineteen thirty five shows were essentially operettas at yes. that point, um, and that also like the modern operas. Can't wait of, to see another Yeoman of the Guard. I got to live for that. Um, <laughs> but you know it's it's worth considering when we talked about opening up the the number of nominations in the individual categories in a previous episode. Yeah. Um, when we talked about the adjudicator special award. You know, you, like you wonder, is is there merit to including a, a second category for best overall show mm. where you specifically focus on pre-1960 maybe in this case, you know, like to, to, to modernize it slightly. So you do get your Oklahomas and your Guys and Dolls and your West Side Stories recognized mm. in there. Yeah, I mean, I think it's difficult to find a natural cutoff point for Absolutely. that. Absolutely, yeah. Um, because like 1935 in of itself seems pretty arbitrary. I think you could look at any date in the calendar and say it's pretty arbitrary. But if you're facing a situation where societies might be disinclined to go or to choose certain shows because they're very poorly represented in best overall or, or not terribly well represented in nominations for a stop, yeah. that there might be a good reason to take a look at this and say, well, you know, because, the, because these shows are still brilliant. You know, yeah. like the likes of your West Side Stories and your Oklahomas and your My Fair Ladies, they're still fantastic shows portions of them you might consider dated but i certainly don't want to walk out and see you know across the list of societies doing shows universally you know adam's family and sister act and all shook up all shook up and all that you know i i think we all would like to see a good variety across the circuit so and certainly i don't think at the moment we're seeing much shying away from doing no, I a don't lot, think so. a lot of the older shows, but right, yeah, but that's that can change. Um, and if people in committees are looking at these shows and thinking, well, they're not likely to get the rewards when we factor in how we might do at Ames, uh, then you could see see societies moving away from some of those older shows. Well, now that we've exposed the truth, particularly <laughs> <laughs> that those shows are. Well, that, that's it. I was like, I just want, I just want to see more of the music, man. <laughs> you know, <that's, laughs> Absolutely, I don't think that's. 
featured on that list at all in, in the last 10 years of nominated for Best Overall no, Show. No, and I probably haven't seen it on that much, but I nope. just want to play Harold Hill so bad. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, you just want to put on that suit. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. you just want to wear the, the red and white jacket with the, or is that purely in the Simpsons monorail episode? I, Does he uh, ever wear that red jacket with the kind of straw hat? No, the, but the, the Buffalo <laughs> Bills do. Ah, yes. Uh, sorry, the Buffalo, do the Buffalo Bills do in the movie? I think, no, they definitely do at some point in the movie wear straw hats. I don't know if they do red and white jackets. Striped coat. Um, <laughs> We can add it. We can add it. We can add it in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, hey. that, that might be what gives us a best visual nomination. That's what the adjudicators are looking for, is, is ingenuity. And bringing yeah, in authentic, Simpsons authentic, references. Authentic reflection of the Simpsons episode. Yeah. Is absolutely. <laughs> <what>. <laughs> um, but yeah, so on top of the director being you know closely linked, or as closely linked as any other category mm. can be, a musical director is up there as well. Yeah, so I'm keen I, you were looking it, at this. I was, and I think it, it's sort of a tale of two halves basically <laughs> one one being that there are a number of shows that are highly represented in both musical director and best overall and there are some other shows that have performed quite well in musical director that actually you don't really see as frequently in best overall so a prime example of this are the two shows that have received the most Best Musical Director nominations over the past 10 years, and they are Sweeney Todd and Titanic. And they've both received five nominations. Sweeney has had four wins. Titanic has had three wins. Wow. Yeah, pretty close. And surprised to see Titanic up there. Yeah, and it's, it's obviously, I think it's quite a difficult show for a musical director to take on in that it's very much an ensemble piece. Your singing is not restricted to one or two characters or your main protagonist largely the singing is quite spread out more so than most shows across the ensemble yeah. i think that's one thing yeah. it's also written for six in the band so oh, wow. what you might say well that that might actually reduce the challenge in some senses for a musical director i think it's difficult to make a band of that size seem big in True. the way that the music of titanic needs to be big yeah. particularly if if your chorus is like 50 people like i think uh, i i didn't actually get to see when port Lee did it recently but mm. um i've seen pictures of of, of their <laughs> their cast it was huge enormous it was like like nearly 70 people on the stage oh, it's big, it but, it's, like. well, but it's a what in, in terms of an actual show like the cast it's, it actually just has a quite a lengthy cast list it has full yeah. stop and anyway, it's not even yeah. a case that like you know it's like a reasonably sized castle and mm. just a large course is actually the parts go on forever well I, so I, think, I think teaching that music and having it executed very well on a consistent basis by your cast is going to present a very big challenge to your musical director so I think that's part of the reward yeah. there and it's it's a very good score I think it's Maury Easton I yeah. think yes yeah Um. so it's it, it, it is very good music yeah. as well which helps yeah, whereas it, Sweeney Todd, I think I'm not surprised by at I'm all. not surprised at all. And I'm not surprised that it, it, it gets the wins it still deserves, whereas Best yeah. Overall and Best Director it has yet to win. Whereas yeah. musical directors like, are killing the game with four yeah. out of five. And yeah. I, think, I think it's because <laughs> the music just stands out so much. Like but, people, you, but go, you, go, you go to Sweeney Todd and you're like, that just sounds so difficult. How are you doing? Everything, like it is an amazing score. It has so many difficult pieces for your chorus. So many difficult pieces for your principal players it is consistently brilliant you listen to that i i, I listen to that soundtrack all the time mm, yeah the original broadway sound it's just fantastic stuff i'm currently reading a book 
that's a series of interviews with Stephen Sondheim mm. about his various shows. So when I get to the chapter about Sweeney Todd, I'll report back in the chat. more to what, say. what was going on <laughs> yeah. through his mind when he wrote that. <laughs> what made him so angry? Why, was, yeah. why, why, why did everyone have to suffer? Yeah, it's it. I I think we we certainly I said last time out on restricted groovement that I thought that the opening of the Hunchback of Notre Dame was the best opening of any musical. Except ever. for maybe Sweeney Todd. It's a Sweeney, Sweeney, Sweeney Todd ain't far behind it in my mind because it is an absolutely spectacular opening. The music is just brilliant, so it's no surprise. But the next two shows with three nominations and two wins each are West Side Story, of course, Leonard Bernstein's music, Stephen Sondheim with the lyrics, so Sondheim reappears again, but Jesus Christ Superstar, Andrew Lloyd Webber. So it's there again. Yeah. So you're you're there, like, even though that both these shows have gotten three nominations for their best musical director. Jesus Christ Superstar has five best overall, and West Side Story only has the one in the last ten years yeah. in best overall. I mean, I look at Jesus Christ Superstar and I go, I can totally see why it's nominated for best overall show because it's just a spectacular show to put on and requires an awful lot of effort to do well. I can also see exactly why it's so highly rated in best musical director because it's sung through and it presents an awful lot of challenges that way but west side story you have to be like no surprise that it's reflected well in best musical director at all because yeah, no. it's that bernstein sondheim Practice. music and lyrics are timeless and those songs i think it was on broadway 57 1957 1958 right and those songs remain incredibly popular today yeah. even independent of the show People know America and I feel pretty, you know, without even necessarily knowing where they're from. Yeah. But but it's really surprising that given that the music is so amazing in West Side Story, the story is timeless because it's based on Romeo and Juliet and it's it's sort of an evergreen show. And that the choreography is so iconic that you don't see more of it in Best Overall. Absolutely. And actually just speaking of choreography, you might take a little detour. Uh, like like you would expect to see West Side Story top in the leaderboard in choreography, like like in terms of nominations anyway. Like mm. maybe when it comes to wins, you might be like, it's such an iconic show, and the movie choreography is so iconic that maybe it's hard to live up to that standard. But mm-hmm. Dan, you were looking at the choreography awards. I was indeed. Yes, is West Side Story up there? It it, it leads the way. It is number one, <laughs> number uno. Now there are no unlike kind of other categories talked about in the last ten years. Obviously the we kind of briefly alluded to that choreography, choreographer, there's a bit of kind of yeah. mishmash, kind of weird history about it. There used to be two separate awards for it, I think up until about 2000, then it just became Best Choreography. And I think around 2010, it stayed as Best Choreography, but then they actually attached like the name of the choreographer to the award. So kind of for 10 years there, it was more like the society won it as opposed to, you know, maybe more an individual. Mm. And then last year they reintroduced the best choreographer mm. while keeping the best choreography. So it's kind of been, a, you know, a bit of <laughs> mixing yeah. and matching, chopping and changing kind of thing. So in the last 10 years, in terms of we obviously best choreographer was only reinstated last year. So we've looked at best choreography yeah. instead, you know, which is still, you know, in my mind, it's still a pretty, pretty good measure for a choreographer. I don't, I don't really yeah. know how you could sit there and say, oh, you won best choreography, but you know, don't go, don't go saying your choreographer is the best now. <laughs> like, <laughs> don't, don't go saying that now. So, um, and like that, there's, there's no repeat winners in the last 10 mm. years in terms wow. of shows, but you are correct in terms of that West Side Story 
is leading the way. It has four nominations and one win from those four nominations. Not surprising. Not surprising. The original dance music. And it makes it all the more unusual that it's not represented better in best overall. Well, this is considering again. that it's it's well up there in both best musical director and best choreographer. Exactly. It's coming yeah. back to the, what we talked about the idea of like that. It's you know best overall. It's kind of like you know the, the greater than the sum of its parts. It's kind of like. Why is it? Why are they falling down in Westside that it's not becoming greater than the sum of its parts? Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like you know, they're obviously nailing it. A lot of people are nailing the music. They're nailing the dancing. You know, you see the likes of Maria, Tony, Anita. Anita's like a role that so many people get nominated yeah. for playing. And it's just kind of like, where's where's the what's happening here? Where's the mismatch? So it's very yeah. strange. But like that, you know, leading the way in the choreography, and then just behind them with four nominations but no win, is Avita. Wow, Avita there again. Which again, I mean. When you think about Avita, I'd be lying if I said the dancing comes no, to the forefront. Not four a show front. that comes to my <laughs> mind immediately for choreography. Yeah, you know? I think it might take the more kind of wider, air quotes, definition of <laughs> the, choreography. The of inclusion like, you know, of movement. Movement, exactly. <laughs> Dramatic yeah. movement, if you will, as opposed to like actual dance routines. You know, I'd say yeah. that's probably where, because again, the chorus is so heavily involved in Avita. Yeah. That, you know, it probably is, you know, it does take in similar in a way to probably the likes of Sweeney or JC as well, where it's not so much yeah. dancing as movement. With, I mean, yeah, with that said, having seen Evita relatively last year, actually with Teachers Musical Society, Serena Salmon yes. choreographed, which was excellent. You know, yes. like really, really strong. Oh, yeah, that, that was proper choreography. Yeah. Like, you know, they were dance routines. Absolutely. But I suppose kind of looking at best choreography, you know, we were talking about this is a strong correlation between overall and obviously mm. musical director and director. Choreography kind of, you know, tears the script up a little bit after <laughs> that because we have, obviously we've mentioned Avita, you yeah. know, is, is up there across the, the board. the best four nominations. Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, West Side Story, we talked about how it's not. And then after that, we each with three nominations and one win each in the last 10 years are Legally Blonde, Cats and All Shook Up, which are... Three shows that we haven't really seen. Don't really feature, Don't feature in, in best no. overall significantly whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, Asha Cup is, is, is in the kind of the upper half of the table with, with three nominations, but it's never won best overall show. Mm. And the other two, Legally Blonde and Cats, I think are, are quite rarely nominated, maybe one or two nominations apiece. But like over the course of, you know, 10 years out of 100, it, it's, it's not particularly significant. Exactly. Yeah, and, but, and Legally Blonde is quite commonly put on Cats, Probably a little less so, but yeah. but yeah. still, you it's know, still, you've seen a couple in the last few years, but not much. But in general, like if you look across the choreography, you know, even shows that have only one nomination mm. across the ten years, but there's shows that you wouldn't really see yeah. in the top. So you're kind of looking, you know, I mean, I can see there's like Forty Second Street has a couple of nominations and a win. Again, a dance yeah. show, but you wouldn't really see it up top very much. Mm. How to succeed in business without trying? Fame, mm. obviously, yeah. you know, Rock of Ages, Honk, you know, there's there's a whole raft of shows. That kind of, you know, will get recognized for their choreography, but you don't really kind of see them turning up. It, it, it's the best overall, so yeah. in terms of when we're talking about indicators and if you're sitting there feeling hopeful on the night, don't look to this one because <laughs> it's, not, it's not helping you out. <laughs> 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 if if you, that gets called out. Just hold on the confetti, hold on the yeah. celebrations because it's not a guarantee. It's not a guarantee. <laughs> Absolutely. But even you mentioned Cats there and Fame and I'm surprised that they have only won. Or Fame hasn't even won, mm. I think. But like, well, like I, Cats I, has I won once in the last 10 years. Might be a product of not being put on that frequently. I mean, you know, particularly fame, I, I don't really see it on the circuit that often. Mm-hmm. Cats a little more so. But Cats not being nominated for a best overall, I can kind of see it. You know, I, I kind of think of Cats in my head as essentially a ballet with 
some Andrew Lloyd Webber music stuck onto it. Yeah. <laughs> like it is, it is predominantly a dance show. Like it is, dan- it is a dance show. I think even before it's a musical. Well, it ain't telling the story. That's for sure. It ain't tell- like no, it's, it's, <laughs> it's just not. Yeah, like just, it's like two hours plus of exposition. And then it well, ends. Well, I mean, it's, it's two hours plus of poetry <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That, that doesn't necessarily fit that well together. I mean, there is a very, very loose overarching narrative. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's a pretty clear gulf between the lyrics and every other song and the lyrics to memory, which were written specifically for the show compared to the poems of T.S. Eliot. Yeah. Every other song you can notice there's a huge, you know, there's a reason memory is the song that everyone sings from that show. Other than the gorgeous music, but it's the fact that it makes sense yeah. lyrically. I mean, it, like, Cats does have really good music, but probably not the icon- iconic kind of standout songs that you would usually associate with Andrew Lloyd Webber shows, with the exception, of course, of memory. Yeah. The new movie version won't have helped with that either. No. The, the, I, I, I mean, that's another day's discussion because we could spend uh, four or five hours on the Cats you, movie. Yeah, the yeah. Cats. We could totally I, do that. Suffice to say that I think it will be dissuasive in its effect mm-hmm. on committees choosing it. But it certainly, it certainly, it certainly yeah. won't lend it to the thing, oh, and there's a really popular movie version that yeah. people remember. No, no, they will not. Oh, so, <laughs> such, a, such a shame. Such a, particularly after uh, Les Mis. Yeah. <laughs> But, like, you look at Legally Blonde being up there as well in the choreography. And again, I mean, you haven't got to be as balletic, let's say, as you would in West Side Story or Cats mm. as, a, as a dancer. Yeah. But there's a lot of dancing in that oh, show. Yeah. A lot and there's of a lot of kind of... The Delta know, News, for example, really have to do oh, yeah. a serious amount of work there. Absolutely. And, like, the Act 2 opener whipped into shape. Like, yeah. that's, that's <laughs> grueling. That's a grueling number. It's one of those ones where you think it's grueling for the pros and you go, we have to do it too. Yeah. yeah. You know? Get out those skipping ropes. Yeah, exactly. You want to start training at least a year in advance before doing Legally oh, Blonde, yeah. I think. Yeah, <laughs> you want to be in, in pretty so. in pretty tip-top shape. But it is one of those, like, it is one of those shows that obviously has a pretty, it's not really concentrated around these principles. Like, there is a broader ensemble and a broader group of people which really have to perform. So... How does best chorus then fit into all of this? Well, again, kind of, you know, restoring restoring the normal order in terms of best chorus in that, you know, you're, we are coming back to seeing shows that we mentioned previously already. Mm-hmm. So leading the way with five nominations and two wins for best chorus in, in the last 10 years is again Evita. Um, and, yeah. we, and we mentioned that. And we mentioned that as well. It's a big show for chorus. They're involved with it. All yeah, the way through. And, and has a number of kind of ensemble and supporting parts, really good supporting parts. Exactly. You know, Magaldi and Shea, and it it's it just it's kind of spreads out the action mm. a little bit in, yeah. in in giving those meaty supporting parts. Yeah, definitely. If 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 this shows if you feel that you have a good chorus, yeah, a strong chorus, you know, with a lot of the kind of strength and depth in that, you know, it's definitely one of those shows that pops into your head as when you're coming around to picking a show. Mm. Yeah, and I'm sure like. Of the five best chorus nominations in the last 10 years for Evita, I'm sure that four of those were the four that were nominated for best overall exactly. for Evita because yeah. like your chorus is so strongly linked to your, your enjoyment of a show overall. I often think that when I go to a show. Like generally, if, if, you, if I go to a show and come away and you ask me one question, did you think the chorus was great? And if I say yes, chances are I thought the show was brilliant. You know, yeah. like very, very rare have I gone to see a show where the chorus was great and I didn't enjoy it. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. it just doesn't really happen. And likewise, the flip of that is that I've often go, gone to shows with great principles, you know, perhaps the same work wasn't done with the chorus and it's just been lacking. 
like the chorus is the heart of every show and if if it's done right the show will be excellent if it's done badly the show will be poor but i mean not surprising to see Evita there at all like it's quite a political show Eva Peron's interactions with the people of Argentina are pretty central to the yes. unfolding narrative of that piece absolutely yeah so if if they're not working well with her on that mm-hmm. you're going to get a little lost because again it's sung through and but it's like, sort of a it's sort of a complex story oh it is oh I remember going to see it <laughs> <laughs> I saw a professional version of it and I did have to crack out the program at half time yeah. <laughs> just to kind of see like what's actually happening here but like that, and again, like, you know, much like the essential characters at the core is kind of go on a bit of an emotional journey, you know, yeah. the, obviously the, the outpouring of grief at the beginning, you know, the joy, the new Argentina, the closes that one, you know, there's, there's a whole range of things at the chorus that's asked of the chorus yes. in that show. Yeah. Um, in terms of other shows that, you know, feature highly in second place, also with five nominations, but only one win to mm. Avita's two, and it's kind of the outlier here a little bit into is Ultra Cup, which... Ah, is yeah. another show that again we don't see. We've mentioned that we don't see it very high up in terms of overall and stuff like that. Yeah, but never won. But in it, having, having done all shook up, the cores again mm. are just constantly busy all yeah. the way through that show. <laughs> like there's about twenty songs that the cores have to learn for that show. Yeah, and it's just it's go go go. So in terms of again having been in it, it's not surprising because you know if that's executed well, it's going to show that you know you are going to get the recognition for that. And it's funny actually because when I tend to think of chorus i tend to think of the sound like yeah. in, in terms of yeah. in terms of the award category anyway like not the physical you know experience of being mm. at a show but the award category i tend to think of the singing and the harmonies and stuff but also up there was like near the top in terms of choreography and we're seeing that link with yeah. the like best chorus so yeah. it goes to show that the adjudicator is taking in you know the full package of what the chorus are doing it's yeah. not just mm. how they sound but it's also how well they move and you know and I think I yeah. think that's part of the wider kind of you know movement in terms of like modern shows are a huge ask and you were seeing that reflected in best yeah. overall that we're seeing in modern shows and I think it's now a case of you know you have to be more than just a group more than just a lovely group of singers you have to be able to actually move on stage yeah. you actually be able to interact and, and kind of be be the heart of the show exactly it's it's funny because it almost takes it back to an older time in theater because all Shook Up is based off Twelfth Night, it is, yes. isn't it? The Shakespeare play Twelfth Night. And going back to that time in kind of Elizabethan and Jacobethan theatre, and even before that into Greek theatre, your chorus was central into sort of showing the audience how they should think of particular characters. Because the reactions of the chorus were seen as sort of integral to telling of the story. And so when, you know... Uh, a maverick roustabout turns up in <laughs> turns up in town to frame the way you think of him your chorus has to tell you that story it has to tell you how the yeah. town thinks it has also has to tell you how the town is changing its perspectives yeah because I mean, it doesn't show, take you on that journey yeah exactly and i mean the show is only two hours long you like like short of having a narrator come in and say and the town was full of conservative people <laughs> and <laughs> the arrival of a man on a leather jacket and a motorbike like sort of bluntly telling the audience that you know which is not going to be entertaining yeah you know like i think generally the more you can show somebody the story instead of you know literally telling them with the words the more enjoyable the experience is going to be and yeah in an amateur musical theater context your chorus is that completely you know it like your chorus need to be giving you those reactions to let you know what the world this story is set in Mm. and uh, to make you believe that beyond the wings that the 
the story continues outwards and beyond. So as they arrive on stage, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. you believe they've come from somewhere. Yeah. And when they it's leave, that they're crucial going to the immersion. Yeah. You know. Oh, yeah. Like, you can't you know. just have them wander on and then you can like see it. You can see another face. They're like that. Oh my God. It just breaks the suspension of disbelief entirely when it, that isn't done right. When the cor- like you don't believe the chorus. It just, yeah. it just shatters your immersion yeah. in the show. Yeah. Absolutely. And like, like you see that, you know, particularly in, in, in school shows when people are learning. And I say that as someone who is probably has been guilty of that at least once before, where yeah. like, you, you forget that you're still performing Even right up until the moment you're completely off stage. Acting in pantomime you know, is still acting. You know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and just how important. So again, like those shows that did win and were nominated, you, you clearly have, you know, your whole team on board. Where everybody is telling the story albeit they haven't got a single line or a single piece of solo mm. singing like they are telling that story as much as everyone else is well that's been a pretty fascinating examination of so far best overall best director best musical director best choreography and just their best chorus what we're going to come back to next week on part two of this feature is taking a look at the individual awards so we're going to look at best actor and best actress we're going to look at best male and best female singer best supporting actor and supporting actress and best comedian and comedian and i think that will probably give us an interesting picture into how those individual awards might contribute to the overall success of a show and best overall or how they might be complete outliers you know what are those parts that individually stand out in shows that might not otherwise get rewarded So that brings us on to our restricted groovement section for this episode. And last time out, we had pitched two musicals to you, Adam. As always, I had selected Fly By Night, an off-Broadway production, which I thought was rather charming. And Dan had suggested, don't give me that snore face. (laughs) Dan had suggested The Hunchback of Notre Dame something of a predictable Disney stage (laughs) adaptation Um, not much in the way of soul I suppose Um, but that's not what you said last time out when you actually said that you preferred Dan's pick Mm. I'm just trying to make it more difficult for you to say Hunchback of Notre Dame okay I love Hunchback of Notre Dame (laughs) it is absolutely amazing Uh, and I am waiting for the day when the rights are made available for amateur groups to do it because it would be spectacular that's true um yeah i mean i when before i started listening to uh, this episode's picks i went back and kind of did a bit of a history because i was trying to figure out what mm. the actual scoring was and i think i think it currently stands at 2-1 to keen i think dan you know shut out the gate with beetlejuice winning over uh, jasper and deadland mm. And then since then, Keen has been on a winning streak, you know. With a winning streak of two. Yeah. Well, it's, it's <laughs> two out of three. And as Meatloaf would say, two out of three ain't bad. Hey. That's true. <laughs> so so I, I decided that I would go with Keen's pick first this time, you know, in the expectation that it was probably going to be my favourite. God, Jesus, I got a real fright there for a second. I thought you were going to go with his pick again. I was like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was like, come no, again. I, I, I actually tried this time. And... and you know, let man speak started, before he gives the win to me. You know, <laughs> as I was as I was listening to Fly By Night, I was like, okay, I, I understand this is a show that literally nobody has heard of. I'm sure the cast that were in it, I'm pretty sure I haven't heard of it, hadn't even heard of it. <laughs> um, yeah, as they turned up to the theater, what are we doing again? But I was like, this bar is being set pretty high. I mean, like the 
title track is the first song on the show Fly mm. By Night and it's really cool it's got yeah. this really cool rock sound you know which I, I find rock and musical theatre can go really well and in a jukebox setting it tends not to go well I think for me like generally when you take a rock singer's back catalogue and, and put it through a Broadway lens it, it, it doesn't lend itself to it kind of it gives you the worst of both worlds but yes We Will Rock You is probably testament to that absolutely uh, and Bad Out of Hell is another example American Idiot another example they're all dire um, <laughs> <laughs> you're not mincing your words here Rock no. of Ages is very good though yes but I think Rock of Ages has a tongue-in-cheek tone the other shows don't have yeah. where it's like we know this isn't like you know the next Pulitzer Prize winning musical but let's just all have a good let's time let's all enjoy ourselves um, so Fly By Night being an original musical as opposed to a jukebox mm. you know the rock thing worked really well because it, it was it was finding that balance all the way through um, but and here's the, the key I then started listening to The Hunchback of Notre Dame I don't like where this is going. <laughs> your like, your use of the ten, word but there was very suggestive. Ten As more. you had both set me up for, the opening Bells of Notre Dame is absolutely outstanding. The the, the chorus is is just phenomenal. Those harmonies, like the Gregorian chant mm. style harmonies oh. from the full company is just, it's mind-blowing. And um, Why Patrick, is there not more Gregorian chant in musicals? <laughs> like That's what I want to know. Absolutely. Or just mm-hmm. in everyday life, why is there not Gregorian chant <laughs> playing in the background while I'm doing my shop in the supermarket? That's what I want. Well, you do have the power. Get the AirPods in. <laughs> and you can you can do your shopping like you're in a 17th century cathedral. This is true, yeah. I get my, my robe and hood and the whole shebang. <laughs> <laughs> Brush up on your Latin lyrics. Yeah, it's absolutely. But, yeah, so... Hunchback of Notre, or the Bells of Notre Dame, rather. That mm. song is just mind blowing. And then for me, it, it kind of it, it it derailed a little bit. Like I like I know out there is one of those songs that's lauded, but it it didn't do a whole lot for me. And what you know, as we got midway through Act One, I was starting to be a little bit well. You know, it has a killer opening, but you know, it's starting to drag a bit for me. And then Hellfire comes on, and Patrick Page as Frollo mm-hmm. is just mind-blowing his voice is fantastic and from there the whole thing picks up at a rate of knots going from hellfire through to the act one finale is just it's pure musical theater it's Mm. that fabulous thing where the the scene is fully told through song it's not you know taking a pause for a moment of thought all of the the dialogue where there is dialogue is underscored and all the story is told through the music Mm. and then Act two has a similar thing where there's a bit in the middle where I would like I wouldn't go and listen to it on its own, but in the context of the show, it's fantastic. But again, the ending of Act two is just phenomenal. Like the way the show closes, it's different ending to the movie. I think. Yeah, there are a lot Um, of differences. I haven't read the Victor Hugo novel, so I have no idea if it's the same or different to the book. The the novel is very dark. (laughs) Like, like the novel is way darker even than the musical. Wow, because the musical is it's a very dark ending, and I I won't repeat past mistakes by you know saying spoiler alert Mm -hmm. and then revealing spoilers so well I, I think you're okay to spoil like a victor hugo novel from like i think it's the 1830s or something <laughs> yeah you know? no but but sure sure i won't give away the ending just go and listen to it and do yeah. yourself the favor of mm-hmm. of if you listen to nothing else listen to the opening and closing of each act <laughs> yeah. you'll get the gist skip yeah. the filler <laughs> and, and skip the filler and like, i think for that reason you know i i think while i really liked the music in fly by night I don't think listening to the album made me have any desire to go and see it staged. Whereas The Hunchback of Notre Dame... All, and hurtful. 
But all I wanted to do when watching The Hunchback of Notre Dame was to go and see it somewhere live. And I, I saw uh, some clips. I, I believe the whole thing is out there somewhere, like a video version of it. Um, but uh, it, it just looks fantastic. And for that reason, the win has to go to The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Yeah! Equaliser scored. Equaliser scored. I have to say... I did see it coming. <laughs> when I, when I preferred your dance. pick over mine last <laughs> yeah, week, yeah, yeah. I did see it coming. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't come as a major shock. <laughs> but I'm interested to hear what, what the, the picks are now for, for the coming. All right. Well, weeks. I mean, you know, loser's prerogative and all that. <laughs> uh, I am going to pick this week something I think is criminally underappreciated as a an original Broadway soundtrack. Yes, that's Broadway. Wow. I've, I've prepared Without to go, enough. Oh, wow. go big this week, but probably something which a lot of people won't know, which is Bonnie and Clyde. And Bonnie and Clyde is Great a use musical. Of criminally underrated when you're talking about uh, Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, it's a musical by Frank Wildhorn. Music and, and lyrics. And societies will know him from Jekyll and Hyde. But yes. those who sort of have an eye on you know, all things Tony Awards will probably remember that 1999 musical, The Civil War, which was a pretty big winner at the the Tonys, certainly in terms of nominations that year. But it follows, there have been countless TV and film adaptations of the Bonnie and Clyde story, which follows two outlaws, Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow. Bonnie, certainly in the musical anyway, has great aspirations to be a famous actress or singer and Clyde has great aspirations to be sort of a a mastermind criminal like Al Capone and it follows their somewhat tragic story and the show opens with them dead so that's not really going to be a spoiler to find (laughs) out the way that that life winds up for Bonnie and Clyde but I think it's the music which really sets this show apart is it quite different to some of the previous shows that Frank Wildhorn had certainly done at that point? Like, very, very different from Jekyll and Hyde. Very, very different from The Civil War. Um, very different from The Scarlet Pimpernel, which is another, you know, Frank Wildhorn yeah. show, like, very much legit. Because yeah, those are all quite traditional, like, like very, in terms of musical theatre. Very, they're very much traditional, style. legit musical yeah. theatre. This is a much more... Country and bluegrass inspired, I would mm. say, rather than, let's say, wholly within the genre okay. of country and bluegrass, because it takes those elements and it mix th- mixes them with musical theatre to create something which is, you know, there's so many beautiful harmonies and so many absolutely wonderful melodies through this show that I'm surprised that I don't see more songs from it performed at, let's say, concerts and things oh, that wow, musical okay, yeah. societies do hmm. i i'm surprised that more of it isn't reflected in those songs that we kind of think of as being you know in the canon of of musical theater maybe because it's again not quite of the legit style that it's much more inspired by a contemporary sound but you know i i can't i can't speak you know highly of enough you go back to um like the cast bonnie's played by laura osnes who was nominated for a tony for her portrayal of Bonnie. Mm. Um, Jeremy Jordan, who plays Clyde in the original soundtrack, a lot of people might know him from the movie adaptation of the last five years, the Jason Robert Brown musical. So 
it's just it's it's just a great great soundtrack and i think everybody should have a listen to it but adam in in particular i think you're going to enjoy it because i think it is the right blend of something which is new and a little bit different but is very much musical theater big talk big talk from this yeah. well, i'm confident I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm quietly confident cautiously optimistic super dan can yeah. you compete with bonnie and clyde I think I can. I Ooh. think I can. I'm feeling confident now. I went. I went big last time out. Just to you know, <laughs> to, you know, to try and blast you completely out of the water, <laughs> just to get, just to purely get back on level pegging, which sounds a little bit desperate. But I think this time I'm going to play you at your own game, and I'm going oh. to go super niche. I'm going to go obscure. I'm going to go something people probably haven't heard of, and hope that will propel me to victory once again. I am here with bated breath. So I've chosen uh, as as my entrant this time around the the 1996 uh, musical Heathcliff which is of course based on the character of Heathcliff from Wuthering Heights okay oh so I wasn't aware there was musical uh, version of Wuthering Heights mm-hmm. well yes there we go indeed does it include the song Wuthering Heights it does by not by Kate Bush it does not thank god I mean, that's, that's one black mark against us from the outside anyway <laughs> yeah, absolutely yeah. dang it the bonus the, maybe the bonus version did <laughs> <laughs> extended director's cut but um, so this show um, was the brainchild of uh, Sir Cliff Richard um, everyone knows Cliff, everyone knows Cliff Richard <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, the, yeah I, rem- little... I remember him every time I go on my summer holidays yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> um, and he long harbored a desire to play Heathcliff in a stage adaption um, simply because it was so against his own obviously squeaky clean image that he was known for sure you know? I mean like and it had nothing to do with the fact that his name was Cliff and it ends with Heathcliff exactly yeah because <laughs> <laughs> I feel secondary like, reason I feel like that is Probably the reason that's less talked about is why he really wanted to do it. Exactly. Yeah. The main, the main, the main talking point for this show at the time was Cliff, Cliff Richard, like obviously playing something very out of character. Yeah, you know? for sure. Um, but they had like at the time, I think it had like advanced ticket sales of about eight and a half million pounds, which oh, was like wow. a record what? at the time. And like you know, that's an incredible. So it opened in nineteen ninety. For something I've never heard of. To yeah. be, oh, yeah, to this have, is, like this much commerciality behind exactly. it. This is it. I only came across it because I watched like a documentary, and this was like part of like the documentary, okay. you know, kind of thing. And they talk, and, like it wasn't a documentary about this; it yeah. was just mentioned at the time. But like this was a bit of a record breaker at the time. Um, I'm, t- I'm telling you, like this, this is going to be a best overall nominee <laughs> next year when, when the odd theater company is putting on. We even invite Sir Cliff along. Exactly, yeah. but um, so it opened in '96 in Birmingham originally, and then it kind of did a bit of a UK the tour. birthplace of all the great shows. Exactly. If you want, if you want a surefire hit, you open it in Birmingham, <laughs> and then it did a bit of a UK tour, and it eventually made it to the West End. Um, and music was by a guy called John Farrer, who's best known who's best known as a long-time collaborator of olivia newton john so he wrote a lot of and co-produced a lot of let's get physical in it i don't know if he actually had anything to do with that one all right which makes sense because you know that feels a bit like she went off on her own it's like yeah no i messed up i'm coming back now (laughs) i did bad i just definitely messed up with her biggest hit (laughs) (laughs) i I went to a dark place there but um he did write he did write um hopelessly devoted to you you're the one that i want Oh, both, both oh of those wow! Okay, yeah, okay. Um, and he was just I mean, like he which, which are not in the original stage show. No, they were in, they were, they were in for a the lot, film. Yeah. A lot of people like stranded at the drive-in, also not in the original. Mm. 
Grease Broadway. What song is that? in the original Grease Broadway show. Um, is it just two hours of Tell Me More fairness, and Grease Lightning? In fairness, most of them are in it. Some of them in the movie get a little bit of a treatment. Yeah. Uh, like, as in they're sort of played when they're all at the dance hall, but in the Broadway show, they're all full songs. Yes. But so oh. so it's they, they do a little bit of an homage to it, but a lot of the... That, that's sort of the, the strange thing, is that a lot of that movie was written specifically for the movie. By the and sounds it, of it, like in a serious improvement yeah. <laughs> like, those are some of the most famous songs I know I mean like Summer, Summer Nights is in the Broadway show for example okay you know yeah. like so there are still yeah. and, you know Grease Lightning is in the Broadway show it's not all imported from the movie yeah. but you're, you're coming around lads so we've got Cliff we've got yeah. John Fire who's written some you know dark sneaky hits and then writing in to do the lyrics Adding some serious musical theatre clout to it is Sir Tim Rice. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Hey, okay. The lyrics for it. You, know, you yeah. can kind of see, like, you know... Long-time is... collaborator with Andrew Lloyd Webber, Exactly, of but mid-90s, yes. they weren't talking. Yeah, it all ended in Betty and Bjorn weren't writing anything. You had to find, you had to find money somewhere. Yeah. yeah. With Mortgage isn't going to pay well. itself. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so... What I kind of, you know, you kind of talked in with Bonnie and Clyde that mm. has a kind of style. For this one, you know, obviously you would expect with, like, a musical adaption of Wuthering Heights to be kind of, you know classic music theatre you know kind of mm. harking back to you know yeah. Rodgers and Hammerstein kind of stuff very symphonic it doesn't really it, it, it kind of <laughs> it it doesn't really to be honest it has it has an odd kind of style there's a lot of kind of what I would call late 80s early 90s you know bit of synth kind of like, bit of like, drums kind of like the power like ballad any of these, yeah power ballad kind of any of these ones could win Eurovision like do you know what oh, I mean nice. like, it, it, I'm it a would. sucker for Eurovision though I I'm do like Eurovision it song. so the kind of opening number for it A Misunderstood Man which I think Cliff Richard either released it separately or it's included in like greatest hits or whatever. Right. But that's like the opening number. And again, it has that kind of, you know, powerful. Like the opening of East Enders. Reverb on drums. (laughs) Yeah, it's so late 80s. (laughs) So there is. It probably only comes in just before verse two as well. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. It's a slow slow burner. And then, you know. In the style of uh, the, the theme from Titanic and a whole new world. And exactly. all of those other early nineties ballads that have—it's it's it. almost like you're saying there's a formula to a hit, Adam, yeah. Because I like that this kind of revolutionary talk, and I'd be interested to hear more <laughs> of your ideas on this point. <laughs> <laughs> no one's talked about it before, but that's like that's like obviously the open number, pretty standout. Um, but what I like weirdly, I really love the overture as well, okay. and I think you will really like the overture, Adam, as well, because you are a guitar player. And it's all classical guitar, so it's very Ooh. so it's a real kind of change when you I, lead into Misunderstood Man, and it's like kind of late eighties power reverb ballad. drums, synth pop, and flamenco guitar. Exactly, <laughs> it's really, not, it really love like because I find overtures obviously like I think a lot more modern shows they don't do an overture anymore. Yeah, it's, it's a cold anymore. open. Yeah, yeah. it, it kind of, and I always find when you listen to maybe like an older, even if they do like a revival of an old show, and they still do the overture. You're kind of like, oh yeah, yeah, preview of all the songs that I will they hear. Kind of give eventually. away all the good stuff, don't yeah, they? Exactly. The overture, yeah. And <laughs> but they're warming you up to the melody. Whereas this is actually true. true. And I, I remember seeing a production of Calamity Jane where during mm. the overture, when the Black Hills of Dakota team came on, the entire audience started singing oh, Black Hills of Dakota. Oh dear, oh, <laughs> oh dear, this is <laughs> this is not to be encouraged. No, that is no. absolutely <laughs> not. Encu- audience participation is not encouraged. I don't think so. I don't know. No, not encouraged. Um, but this overture is actually a lovely piece of music mm. to listen to. It's Fantastic. actually really lovely, gentle, and then you get the obviously misunderstood man. There's a couple of other ones going through it as well. When you thought of me, which closes Act One as well. Again, another. Big, big kind of parabolity kind mm. of song, and Cliff, you know, he's he's more than a match for it. So yeah, I'll be interested to see. I'll be interested to see. I think I think there's a lot of things in here that would appeal to you. 
I look forward to it. I mean, it sounds like I'm not surprised it was a massive success because, I mean, that's a classic piece of English literature, um, you know, and, and like Cliff Richard is a bit of an icon in the UK. It's, mm-hmm. it, it'd be a bit like if they decided Just to British do British icons coming together. It's a bit like if they did a, a musical version of Ulysses in the 90s and cast Joe Dolan in the lead. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you would easily oh see millions machine. of euros spent in, in advance bookings yeah. for that. Oh, if I had a time machine. Feck <laughs> going back to the Aztecs. That's what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it, that, that's classic. It's Mullingar meets Dublin. Joe oh. Dolan is Leopold Bloom. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm only sorry we didn't get to see it in our lifetimes. <laughs> well, Adam, we will be really interested to hear what your yeah. thoughts are on these two picks next week. Okay, that wraps it up for this episode of the Oddcast. Be sure to tune back in in a fortnight's time where we bring you the second part of our feature, What Wins at Ains, where we explore the individual categories. In the meantime, make sure you follow and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to this show to keep up to date with the latest episode. Or if you want to get in touch with us, email us at theoddcast at oddtheatre.com or get in touch with us on social media at The Oddcast by Odd Theatre. Until next time, everyone, stay safe. Talk soon.